Hello, I'm Harriet Minter and this is a Truth Universally Acknowledged, the podcast where we celebrate all things women's commercial fiction and the brilliant authors filling up our bookshelves. This week, I'm joined by a woman whose first book was described as the Muslim Bridget Jones, Aisha Malik. I was desperate to have Aisha on the show because her latest book, This Green and Pleasant Land, had grabbed me from its opening. It's about a man who tries to honour his dying mother's wish, for him to build a mosque in the small English village he's moved to. I cannot recommend the book more, so getting to talk to Aisha about the characters, writing about identity, and the joys and horrors of becoming a writer was an absolute gift. I hope you enjoy the interview as much as I did. And of course, if you do, please take a minute to rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening. It helps other people find it and just makes me feel very loved. Before that, though, a quick update on my own book. I've written another 5,000 words. Yay! And I did it all under my own steam. So if you listened to last week's episode, you'll know I had to be pushed into writing by a friend of mine. But this week, I've got the joy back and I'm loving it. I think that's partly because I'm writing a really fun bit in the book. I've sent my heroine off on a women's retreat, something I've done a few times. And she's meeting lots of kooky characters and getting up to all sorts of weird and wonderful woo-woo practices. I'm having so much fun putting down on paper all the weird experiences I've got up to over the past few years. It's allowing me to remember and celebrate them. And so sitting down to write each day is a joy. I guess this is what happens when you write about what you know. Long may that joy last. And something else that was also a joy, talking to Aisha Malik. Here she is. So this week I am joined by an author whose book I kind of picked up in one of those. You see it and it looks, you read the back and you think, oh yeah, I quite want to read that. And you buy it and then you sort of put it down and then a few weeks later you come back to it, pick it up and from the second you read the first page you can't put it down and that's it, you're in the world and the world has got you. And I'm so very excited to be able to talk about world building and just the delight that is mocking the English countryside. I grew up in it so I'm allowed to mock it with the fabulous Aisha Malik. Hi Aisha, lovely, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and for that wonderful introduction. I always, I have, I suffer from this slightly problem where I write into my novel rather than just starting with a bang. So <laughs> a lot of readers give me this feedback. And so it's really nice to finally hear someone say, actually, from page one, I was sucked in. So that's something um, I haven't nailed yet, I don't think. That is really interesting because that, for me, this was... I mean, I would say absolutely from page one, I was like, I know I'm going to love this novel and I cannot wait to find out what happens. And so the novel we're talking about is The Green and Pleasant Land. It's, is it your third, fourth? Third Third, one. Third novel. Um, And I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of the novels before and how you came to write this one. But the thing that I have to talk to you about because I loved it so much and it was at the beginning of the book and it was the thing that hooked me. At the beginning of the book, we start with a death so we start with the death of the main character's mother and it's written um, at that point from her point of view and she tells this lovely anecdote about how in order to prepare for death she has dug herself a grave in her back garden and has been lying in her grave to kind of get ready and experience it and understand it where did that come from because it is so brilliant 
Um, yeah, so I um, attend some um, Islamic short courses and I remember the sheikh who was teaching us, and I call, I call him angry sheikh because he was angry a lot of the time about everything, <laughs> mostly the modern world. And he, he told us about a story, and I'm not sure whether it's a prophetic story or whether it's just a, a random story, about a man who would dig his grave and he would lie in it every night just to understand that, um, you know, you're never far away from death, to contemplate life. And I thought it was just poignant, yes, but also incredibly comedic. And um, I knew in that instant that I wanted to put that somewhere in a novel. This, this novel does address grief as a theme and loss. And so I was like, this is the perfect, this is the perfect novel. To, to add that bit in and the character, the main character, Bilal's mother, Sakina, is so eccentric that actually it fitted with her personality perfectly. <laughs> Just got one of those real life anecdotes and stuck that in my book. I mean, it's wonderful and it's just a wonderful it it's a wonderful way to instantly sum up the eccentricity and sort of quirk of a character and give you a real insight into who they are. And then also what I loved about this book is you know the impact that character then has on all the other characters around them and how they've experienced that so let's like go back a little bit first of all if you were to tell me about the first book you wrote and how you came to write it what started you on your career as a writer and um, so I always wanted to be a writer and I knew that from a very young age and I was um just trying various things to distract myself from actually writing and it was eventually when I decided to do my master's in creative writing that I knew that this is this is the year I'm going to spend seeing if I can do this long term and I think what I did was I am um, I think as a as an author from a South Asian Muslim background I think there is this unsaid no one said it to me but I think because of all the literature that was out there I felt this internal sort of need to write something that was quote unquote literary fiction. So I started writing this um, really self-conscious pseudo literary novel because I was like, I'm brown, so I'm just going to have to write this because <laughs> that's what we do. And I spent like three years writing 18,000 words and tweaking and, you know, beautifying sentences and just editing and rereading and saying, oh, that sounds lovely. Oh, that doesn't make sense. How do I fix that? Anyway, three years on and I'd spoken to a friend who's also an editor about it. And she said, she's like, love, bin the book. It's not working. You spent two years on it, on 18,000 words. It's time to write something new. I think that's when it sort of clicked that I wanted, and I've always loved um, Bridget Jones. She's actually my hero. Um, <laughs> love Helen Fielding, love Bridget Jones, love the books, love the first film, bordering on obsession, right? <laughs> and I also um, had many, many dating stories that I would then tell my colleagues when I would go into work, when I used to work at a Random House in publicity. And one of them was like, oh, you should write a book about that. I was like, oh. <laughs> anyway, so then all these various strands had, you know, sort of were introduced into my life. And then that was the moment when my uh, editor friend said, just bin the book, write something new. And I was like, I'm going to write a Muslim book, Jones. Sod it. Park the literary fiction. Come back. Yeah, I'll come back to that later. Yeah, park the literary fiction because let's face it, it was shit. <laughs> um, and let's go with the Muslim Bridget Jones. And that 
it wasn't easy to write, but I think the voice was really easy to capture because so much of it was in many ways, they say that you don't have to write what you what you know, but in many ways, if you're a debut novelist, it can be um, a really good way of not having to worry about things like authenticity, but that's another podcast. We don't have to talk about authenticity. It's a very long conversation. But, you know, you don't have to do lots of research. You are just very, you, you know who the characters are, you know what the story, you think you know what the story is going to be. And so you can just focus on the sort of style, the voice, and the, the, the pleasure of actually writing it. And that's really interesting to me because I had this moment when I decided that I wanted to write a book and I knew that the first book I ever wrote was always going to be kind of women's commercial fiction because I also loved Bridget Jones and adored Helen Fielding. I adore funny women writers. I think it's a real gift and we don't have enough of it. And yet I sort of got distracted by the, oh, maybe I should be writing some literary fiction which could win the booker. <laughs> as well where does that voice come from and how did you get past it was it just having somebody say let it go or did you have to kind of do some work for yourself to get past it I think it's a, I mean it's a good question I think it comes from outside literary snottiness you know because if you, I don't know if you studied English at school and all the books you read yeah. and the sort of publishing influence that I had when I worked at, um, at Random House and I was in vintage department so I worked with amazing authors like A.S. Bayer and Ian McEwen yeah. and, you know, um, Louis de Bernier. And so that that sort of feeds into this need to be, quote, unquote, great. But, you know, what is great literature? And that's, again, another podcast. Um, so I think I think I let it go because the, the book was just so in keeping with something that I, I loved doing. And this, um, it was just, it was, I just let myself have fun. And I think it's also a, a sort of misapprehension that a funny book can't also be poignant. I mean, we read um, Heartburn. Yeah. It's so funny and it's also so heart-wrenching. And I think it's just this wonderful mix of humour and, from my perspective, literary quality. The, you know, the quality is still there. So I think you can write amazing women's commercial fiction, great quality writing and... I don't think, um, yeah, for me, I um, I didn't see it as a rom-com. I just saw, saw it as a story that I wanted to write. And I think it was whilst I was writing the book, I still tried, and I actually my editor friend who then later read the first draft said to me, you're trying to make this book into something that it's not. It is a rom-com and you need to embrace that. This draft, it's got all the elements there, but you're trying to make this something that it's not. So I think actually the process probably took me a lot longer than I recall. So that I remember that that conversation with the editor friend and just came to me. And it, yeah, so I think it actually took me a while to accept that I was just writing a rom com, and I just had to accept and embrace that. And actually, it's only when I took her advice and I did embrace it that. The, the writing then began to, to sort of flow in the way that, that it did. Did it free you from something, that advice? Um, yeah, just this expectation that something has to be um, serious in order to be important. I mean, just, I read A Little Life last year. I have so much stuff to say about that book. I think it's an example, it's a great example of a book that 
really pulls you in. You invest in the characters, but it's relentless in its misery. And I wonder, I just wonder whether that's what appeals to people. Maybe it does, because I think comedy doesn't doesn't really get the sort of respect, I think, that, that no. is. And I find this really interesting because I knew that I wanted to write something that was joyful. And I suspect that I wanted to write that because it was in the middle of a pandemic and everything felt quite bleak and dark. The kind of highlight for me was being able to escape on my sofa with a book that took me somewhere joyful and happy. And I wonder if we think that's lesser because we sort of give some kind of extra credence to people who can sit and write through a lot of pain. But actually, writing funny is hard, right? It's it's hard to come up with a funny line. It's hard to put a character in an awkward situation and make it convincing and possible. I don't think that we are appreciative enough of actually the effort that has to go into making that. Yeah, and I think also um, the effort of the comedy, which doesn't feel like an effort, but also trying to interweave quite serious shoes. So I like to think that this Green and Pleasant Land is um, is quite a funny book. It has its comic moments. But I also talk about grief and loss and home and belonging and, you know, a, a marriage falling apart and dealing with all sorts of kind of historical traumas I guess you could say and so I think actually comedy is what brings it sort of what glues the pain together in a way that makes it palatable you know and I think life is also like that life is both incredibly depressing but also incredibly joyous and I just like my novels to reflect that and I refuse to be the type of writer who just wants to write hopeless books you know always want a sense of hopefulness in in whatever I write because I just think that that's what life should be you know in in many ways. I always remember having an understanding that actually there's the greatest comedy generally sits right next to incredible sadness. Um, When I was about 13 or 14 at my grandmother's funeral I remember we were sat in the car behind the hearse that had obviously her coffin and her body in it on the way to the crematorium and obviously when you're behind a hearse nobody can overtake it and they go very slowly and so there was the hearse and then there were kind of two or three cars of my family and then there was like building up behind us this kind of 20 pile car of all these cars being like oh my god we're never going to get to where we're going very very slowly and I could see the roundabout coming up with the sign for the crematorium to the right. And you could, I remember looking back and literally seeing the visible relief in the driver behind us. He's like, oh, thank God, they're going to turn right and we can all finally get out of this traffic jam. And um, getting to the roundabout and everybody turning right, as I did, seeing this sign which said diversion and all the cars had to follow us round to the right and just sit behind us again. <laughs> And there was just like this lovely thing, which is like this thing, which is very, very sad and serious, but actually has some beautiful humor in it. And I got lots of that in this green and pleasant land. I really loved that sitting the kind of comedy and the weird shenanigans that happen in life next to some of the very sad things. Also, there is a fantastic joke that goes the whole way through it about Tom's Bush. And I appreciate a classic Bush joke. So I really enjoyed that. 
so childish, but I really enjoyed it. And my editor really enjoyed it. So we were like, sod it. We're just going <laughs> to... So we should say the kind of premise of the book is Bilal lives with his wife and his stepson and he grew up in Birmingham. He's moved out with his wife and his stepson to a very quintessentially English village in the countryside. And they are, I get the impression, the only kind of non-white family in the village. And they've just sort of been carrying on with their lives. And then when Bilal's mother dies... She tells him to build a mosque, build a mosque in his village. And he can't get rid of this idea and it sits with him. And so he decides he's going to build a mosque in the village. Cue inevitable uproar, which, I mean, I as I said at the beginning of this, I grew up basically in that village. And when I was growing up, there was the uproar because the manor house got sold to a gay couple. And it was the first gay couple to move to the village and the well I, I am absolutely you know you can love whoever you love and be with whoever you want to be with but <laughs> that went on when that happened um, and the sort of the curiosity and what are they going to be like and what will happen and what does this mean and well we're going to just be flooded with gays from London now you know all this kind of these sort of statements that <laughs> you look back and you're like this very weird behavior happening at that point and inevitably this happens to Bilal and his family. Tell me a little bit about kind of what made you want to write this story and yeah, why you went with this idea. I don't I don't like talking about um identity politics too much because I find it a bit of a bore to be honest. I'm not very interested in it, but I am interested in home and belonging. Um and I think the the question of home and belonging is brought up a lot more when you're of a Muslim faith and Pakistani and um, South Asian background, um, especially because of all the, you know, the, the terrorism since 9-11. Um, and every time there's a there's a terrorist attack, you know, that question mm-hmm. inevitably comes up. And so I wanted to um, write a story that explores what home and belonging is and what the English landscape means to us. And, and I think this was also um, during Brexit when um, we realised that actually London we live in a bubble and my first two novels were set in London I think it was a really rude awakening to to a lot of us and um I you know I've never lived in a village I'm born and raised um in London and so I went to a small village in West Dorset and I stayed there for a month just got to know people um had lots of conversations a friend of mine lives there and it's sort you know I just got an idea for the sort of way of life and you know what it would mean to people if someone decided to build a mosque in their village. <laughs> I did ask that question and I got a lot of, eh, yes, well, you know, hmm, I do, as long as there's not that loud prayer five times a day, you know, perhaps. Um, so it was all very polite and English. But it was just, yes, so it was, um, it was something that I wanted to explore. If you want to make this place you live in home then who's to say that a mosque shouldn't be part of the English landscape in the in the world that we live in today you know and it wasn't you know it wasn't a judgment and it wasn't a sort of you must you should be okay with a mosque in a village it was more it really is more an exploration of the complicated feelings that this situation can evoke in people both from a Pakistani Muslim background and sort of um 
white heritage background because it is a home and belonging is a very complicated thing and um, I don't think there's any one right answer and I think that um, it's important to sort of explore views that are not necessarily aligned to yours in order to understand things better and also in order to write a better story because anything that's black and white in any story is not it's not very interesting you know well that's a really I think that's a really interesting point because in the book you tell the story from lots of different points of view there's you know lots of different characters and I wonder how you managed to give all of those characters actually the kind of the arc and the journey that they go on did you know where they were all going on their journey with this story or did it come as you wrote the book I think I knew where they had been and I knew who they were in that present moment and I think that informed what their journey would involve. It wasn't, yeah, I'd like to say it was really difficult to write from five different perspectives including a 60-year-old sort of white busybody woman and a a 40-year-old Church of England. um, (laughs) But I... You know, I, I, I just really I just really enjoyed it, you know, and I think that it was um, trying to slip into those shoes and understand the sort of complications that we feel internally when we're faced with something as outrageous as a mosque being built in the, in the village, you know. <laughs> How do we reconcile who we are and who we want to be? And so that, I guess, was the sort of the, the core of um, exploring each character, who did they want to be and who they are in the present. Do they do they even like who they are, you know? I think that's a lovely question. It's really one of the things that I really got when I read the book for me was it forced me to look at that who I am versus who I want to be. And I was like, would I, if I was living in my little English village still, would I have any kind of qualms or moment of like, ooh, if somebody said they were building a mosque, and I was like, oh my God, I think I would. And it wouldn't even have occurred to me that I would have thought that. But actually being able to experience it through the characters, I was like, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think it's really important um, to be able to just say outright that we are all prejudiced in our own yeah. way. Whatever it might be, There's, we all have deep-seated prejudice. And I think it's really a dangerous, we, we start treading really dangerous ground when we're expected to just react a certain way to a certain situation. I think human beings need to be given time to sort of really think about why they reacted in a way to a situation that they've reacted and allow them that time to interrogate what they've done and how they've learned from it. Um, and I think and I think it's, uh, it's really good for people to be able to admit, actually, mm, I think I have a bit of a problem with that, but let me just spend some time and unpick why. Yeah, unfortunately, I think that that perhaps doesn't happen a lot nowadays. Um, And I think that's a shame. And I think it also impacts the way we tell stories because if you have the binary of what is right and what is wrong, then how are you meant to explore human beings? They are complicated and they have their own emotional and historical baggage. And what might be perceived as right for you is not necessarily right for another person. It's interesting because the book looks at that idea also of kind of acknowledging that you're wrong and the expectations we have about people acknowledging they're wrong. So who do we expect to acknowledge and to what degree and how do you have to go about doing it in order for people to forgive you, which I thought was was a very interesting kind of 
yeah, interesting point to read. I wanted to ask you, because the book is about home and belonging and where we make our home and what we need to feel at home. Like, when you decided that that was the kind of theme that you wanted to explore, what was it that drove you to explore it in the first place? And then how did exploring it kind of change you? And what did you learn from it? Gosh, that's a good question. I think, as I said earlier, it was about the sort of um, the, the narrative of whose home is it? And I think especially in recent events, knowing that this new bill has been passed about passports being able to be taken away. What we're talking about here, in case you don't know, is a clause that was added to the Nationality and Borders Bill. I mean, I remember having conversations with my mum many, many years ago and her saying, well, you know, they did it in Uganda. They might, they, they could do it here. And I was like, oh, you're ridiculous. You know, it's such a ridiculous notion. And lo and behold, shit, turns out my mum can be right sometimes. Oh, it's so annoying when that happens. It's so annoying <laughs> when mothers are right. Uh, <laughs> but also done so quietly. That's the thing that really scares me about that particular bill. So where quiet. Was, where was, where was Where's the, the outrage? Where was the protest? Why didn't I have the outrage? Yeah. Why didn't I have the outrage, you know, as well? Why didn't I start, you know, creating protests and rallying and stuff? And I think that's sort of, that's always been in the background, this this fear of being the other and being othered. And I think, you know, I've had like, who hasn't? I mean, if you're brown, you're going to have had racist experiences. That's just part of the course. And I used to wear a hijab. So, you know, I remember once on Tooting High Street, I'm walking past a guy and I heard someone mutter terrorist. And my first instinct genuinely was, oh my God, where? You know? And I realised that he was talking about me. And so I think that, I think, was a quite an interesting moment for me because I had never seen myself as other, regardless of the hijab, regardless of the colour of my yeah. skin. But seeing myself through this person's lens was a bit of a, a bit of a jolt. And so the, the book was really about sort of um, asking the question, how much of yourself and how much of your cultural identity do you have to diminish in order to be palatable for other people? You know, uh, I've had so many people say to me, oh, you're Muslim, but you're cool, you know, and it's those kinds of comments seem like a compliment, and I'm sure they are when people, but actually there's a lot to unpick. When you unpick. Yeah, yeah, there's yeah. a lot to sort of um, interrogate there in terms of, well, what do you mean? So I used to wear, you know, colourful hijabs. I, I, I liked wearing skinny jeans and whatnot. So I think my brand of being a hijabi was almost, oh, this is, she's fun. She's, she wears it like that. But, you know, if I walked into the office wearing a burqa and a full face veil and a niqab, I think the reaction might have been very different. So, so how much do you strip of yourself emotionally speaking, in order to be palatable to a wider audience and in order to be acceptable. And I think for Bilal, part of the reason his mum asks him to do this is because she thinks he's a bit hes a bit of a coconut, you know, white on the inside and brown on the outside. She's fearful for his soul. She's like, he needs to reclaim his faith. But Bilal's very happy being just this, this bill in the village and not being of Muslim faith and just ostensibly being brown. He thinks it's, he, it's fine, but this one event forces him to really question why he's accepted by the people around him. And actually, if he wanted to embrace parts of his cultural identity, 
that obviously doesn't go down as well as he thought it would. It's such a beautiful, funny, moving and just really thought-provoking book I absolutely loved it and I actually really want to give it to my dad because um would my dad mind me saying that he's mildly racist probably not but he's definitely like he's definitely the old codger living old codger living in the in the village who you know briefly for a little period when I worked at the Guardian kind of decided he was going to become a bit woke and like live off his daughter's brand and he was going to be a bit woke and, that. and it hasn't quite lasted and I was like actually he would absolutely love this book Aww. and what I loved about it and I love about books generally but this is a beautiful example of it is it allows people to kind of expand their experiences right because we can't have every experience under the sun we can't all experience everything there is out there but actually you can read something and be taken into a different world and have the experience of being in that world and learn from it and grow from it anyway yeah and I love books that just force you to sort of question things and question your own ideology and how would I react and oh guess what I'm not a perfect person and just you know um, opens up other avenues of ways for you to also perceive yourself as well as others. And you were, and also that your reactions to that as well, right? So one of the characters in the book goes on this really interesting journey where she starts off very firmly on one side and then sort of gets pulled over towards the middle and by the end of it is like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm probably not where I thought I was to begin with. Mm. And I, I think that is interesting for all of us to experience as a reader. Right, to start on one side of the book and then as you go be like oh okay maybe I'm moving over this other side as well I wanted to ask you on this point about identity and you mentioned this earlier and I wondered sort of when I was kind of reading up about you and um, your books and your writing and I saw this and I wondered how much you loved it and how much it was a frustration which is the tag of the Muslim Bridget Jones oh yeah, no, I don't mind it at all. Actually, people ask me that quite often and I don't I don't mind because I pitched it as a Muslim Bridget Jones. I knew exactly what I was doing. Uh, <laughs> I riffed off on Helen Fielding in an obscene way in terms of just <laughs> narrative structure and you've got the you've got the you've got the main protagonist, you've got her group of girlfriends, and you've got the the dysfunctional mad um yeah. family, immigrant family in this in this case. And so I have no qualms with that, actually, because I, that's what I set out to do. And I'm still fine with it. And do you think you will keep writing or do you think you are now kind of expected to write about Muslim culture and to be that voice? And if so, is that a good thing or do you find it? Yeah, no, I think with the first one, it was very much uh, about I can't say I've written a book that I haven't wanted to write. So every book apart from maybe my second book because my publisher wanted a sequel and I was like really <laughs> so that was that's the second book is a bit of a, a non-starter yeah the I was interested these are the things that I was interested in at the time will I continue to write like that probably not um my fourth book that's coming out in July is it's got nothing to do with Islam or being Muslim or identity or home and belonging and now I feel that I've done those things. I've explored the Muslim identity sort of crisis and I'm done with it. You know, it's to me, it's kind of, it's a bit boring now because it's, I've done it um, and I don't, I don't feel like I have any more to offer in terms of 
perspective and questions. I think faith always plays quite a huge part in my life. And so that inevitably filters into my books. So even though there's no sort of Muslim identity stuff in the fourth book, there is stuff about faith. One of the characters, you know, has a bit of a struggle with God. And so that is an an inevitable sort of outcome of the way I live my life and the way I think about things as well. But otherwise, no. Um, and yeah, my fifth book isn't going to be about it either. So um, I'm free. I'm free from the Muslim world. <laughs> I'm very glad that my editors um always very supportive about what I want to write. And um, yeah, she's been great about this book. So can you tell us a little bit about the fourth book? So it's called The Movement. And it's about a writer, character Sarah Javed, who um, on the night of about to receive a huge literary award that she's coveted her entire literary career. um, She's grown really fed up of all the voices and all the opinions and everyone arguing and all the shouting and she just wants everyone to shut the fuck up and so what she does is she takes her own advice and she shuts the fuck up and she just goes silent and what happens when when she goes silent on the night of this award ceremony is it ends up going viral so people around the world and it starts off with a celebrity in hollywood going silent and people around the world start taking vows of silence and they're they're known as non-verbals so you've got this world eventually that within a year changes literally almost overnight and um turns into this kind of polarized non-verbals versus verbals social institutions begin to sort of crack the economy begins to collapse, like everything just begins to fall apart. So it's a bit different to what I wrote. This is amazing. Sounds exciting. Yeah, no, it was it was incredibly difficult to write, but it was just it was it was a great it was a great experience because I really challenged I challenged myself with this one. Have you done a period of silence? Have you done it ever done like a silent retreat or anything like that? Yes. Yeah. How did you find it? Yeah, I did. So um, for research for this book, I did um, a week's silence. And I mean, I live on my own. So the only thing that really changed was me not calling my mum every day to check out. <laughs> um, and I did have friends calling me and just sort of talking at me, knowing that I couldn't respond. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'd go to coffee shops and I'd mime. What I would want, or um, you know, going to the post office, or get um, yeah, having parcels delivered, and it was interesting. It was really, it was interesting. It was, it made me think that what I'm trying to do in the book is probably not very plausible. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but it was too late by then, to be honest. So I was like, sod it, I'm just going to run with it, you know. And that's the joy of fiction, right? <laughs> Aisha it's been so lovely chatting to you thank you so much I'm very much looking forward to the fourth book I'm very much looking forward to my father reading the screen of Pleasant Land I loved it I honestly I just really enjoyed it so thank you for writing it and thank you for coming on and talking to us thank you so much for having me that was Aisha Malik and this green and pleasant land is out now I loved it hard recommend We're ending this week's podcast with a little exercise I actually did the other day and loved because it channeled my wannabe interior designer. It also ties into this green and pleasant land because it's about creating space for all the parts of who we are. So this week, my invitation to you is to create a space dedicated to your own creativity. 
It could be a whole room, it could just be part of a shelf. But find a way to give a home to the part of you that feels energised and happiest when it's creating. The part of you that, in the middle of a creative project, feels excited and lit up. What goes in the space is entirely up to you. Maybe you want to exhibit some of your work, maybe you want pictures or quotes that inspire you, perhaps you have particular keepsakes or mementos from moments or places where you felt you're most creative. Whatever it is, bring it together to create a space that when you're with it, you feel inspired to bring your full creative self to the party. And if you do it, I'd love to see it. Please share a picture with me on Instagram at Harriet Minter or send me an email, harriet.minter at gmail.com. And that's all for this week. Now go create.